Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. This is Hour 2. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. And just so love starting the day with all of you, part of the Faith Radio family. One of my favorite things that happens throughout the years when we do our share events with Faith Radio. We get to hear from you, hear how what is happening at Faith Radio impacts your lives as well. We get to know your stories, your names. Been really fun to see you texting in this morning as well. Continue to do so with any questions that you might have at 877 933 We have a slight change in the schedule that happened here at the top of the hour. Our first guest in this hour, too, is Chris Singleton, a former baseball player drafted by the Chicago Cubs. And he's released a book called Baseball Across America. And Chris... Around the world, oh, baseball. Isn't it? I'm sorry. Yes, I had America in my mind. I think from the Adam Carrington conversation, baseball around the world, and uh, and Chris has released this book about how baseball can help us get into each other's lives, crossing some of the social and cultural barriers. Chris's time was a little limited this morning, so we're going to bring him in right now. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, great to have you as well. I one of the things that's happened in these last maybe 15 years or so, in particular, Chris, is that we've seen the compression of societies around the world, meaning that it's easier to get into contact with one another, social media, the internet, mobility, technology, airplanes, all of these things have really increased in speed and we're able to interact with one another far more so than we did in generations past across different countries and and cultural lines. And sometimes that can be a little tricky and, and difficult to understand one another, but a vehicle like baseball brings us to a a place of common ground. and, And you talk about this in your book. So, what, how did you get this book started? What are some of the things that you noticed as you started doing the research in this? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, man, my mission um, after losing my mom has been always to bring people together, right? And, and, and let us realize that we're a lot more alike than we, we think we are. Um, and so sports has always done that. And like you were saying, you know, when I was playing professionally, I, I had FaceTime so I could FaceTime my wife, my son, um, but they didn't have that back in the day. One thing that's been pretty much universal through our sports is that it, in the locker room, people come together. And so when I think about the sport of baseball, how it's played in Dominican Republic, Colombia, Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, so many different places around the world, my hope is that when people realize that, it'll bring them closer together. And did you have a chance to travel a bit, Chris? Um, or, or I'm sure you've met a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life as you were in those locker rooms. Again, I think it's one of the beauty of sports is that when we have a common purpose, we really do begin to transcend some of these barriers that keep us apart culturally. And, and I'm assuming you've had a chance to travel or you certainly had a chance to interact with people from different walks of life than you in the locker room. Absolutely, man. And, and doing the work that I do right now, I'm on the road about 120 to 150 days out of the year, uh, speaking to different school districts, different companies uh, with the message of unity. And so uh, doing this around this country and even the world a little bit now, it's been fun, but you realize that we do have some work to, that needs to be done. Um, sometimes we forget that there's so many things we don't choose in our lives. When I just remind people that we don't choose our skin color, our first language, uh, our parents, so many different things, 
when that when that I guess the light bulb goes off in their head again, it helps us bring people closer together. Talking with Chris Singleton, uh, he was drafted by the Chicago Cubs in 2017. He's released a book here on June 17th called Baseball Around the World, How the World Plays the Game. And I think this book, again, highlights the importance of, of how we can cross cultural barriers. Because, Chris, we talk about that topic a lot on this morning show is how do we achieve some versions of racial reconciliation, some versions of racial justice with one another, and it can be difficult to just jump right into policy and jump right into um, trying to understand one another in a face-to-face conversation. But wh- when we are playing together, when we're laughing together, when we have a common purpose together, some of those things I'm imagining start happening naturally. And before you know it, you're enjoying each other's company without having to worry about a lot of stuff. I agree, man. And, and even with policies, like people have to live out those policies that we put into place. Um, and, and first of all, for us to be able to put them in place, people's hearts have got to change. And so when we bring people closer together when we're cheering on the same team or we're learning about something together. Um, I definitely think that that changes the hearts, which then hopefully will change the policies. And then we got to live out the policies and, and things of that nature as well. So I, I definitely think it starts with the heart and ends with the heart for us to go live out and create unity in this world. Chris, we get a chance to travel with you in the book. And when we come back after a short break, I want to get your take on what you learned as you did the research, as you've done your own travel, about what people eat in Japanese baseball stadiums, how maybe a gold rush brought baseball to Australia. Uh, South Korean games are allowed to end in a tie, which is crazy making to me. There's so much that we can learn of one another just through this lens. More to come with Chris Singleton on Mornings with Carmen. We are talking baseball this morning with the book Baseball Around the World, written by Chris Singleton, and takes us into so many different cultures where baseball is played and the commonality of that sport, how it can bring us together. So, Chris, there's a part of the section, a part of the book in which you talk about what people eat in Japanese baseball stadiums, and, and eating together somehow brings us together. What do they eat in Japanese baseball stadiums? Yeah, it's funny. As we were uh, starting to write this, this story, I, I actually hired a guy, Dean Burrell. I'm a young guy. I'm 26. But uh, I would say I'm a big baseball fan, but there are so many different things I had absolutely no idea about. And uh, he told me that they actually eat octopus in Japan during the baseball game, which is, <laughs> which is, which is pretty funny to me. But it's, it's actually really cool. Like you mentioned, you know, I guess foods and music definitely brings us closer together. And uh, I've never tried it myself. I think that's something I got to have during a baseball game. Uh, but I, I definitely would be willing to do so to, to uh, I guess, adopt that culture while watching the sport that I love. I definitely have tried some octopus, Chris, and uh, I'm a pretty big sushi guy, but octopus takes it to an entirely different level, and I think it was the suction cups that uh, really made it made it difficult at the end of the day. <laughs> I love it. I got to try it, man. You I got to try it. <laughs> but food does bring us together. I think about, I grew up in the, in the 1970s and 1980s, and uh, my best friend growing up was African-American. He grew up in the north side of Minneapolis. He moved into a, a lily-white sort of rural suburban culture and uh, there was about 500 kids in our graduating class and he Chris was one of only three African-American students in in our school at that time and I I don't think I understood entirely well in fact I'm sure I didn't understand his his situation at all when he was simply at school and how he he really was forced to 
I suppose, hide parts of himself to try to fit in. Um, and it wasn't until our friendship went to different levels and we started going to each other's homes. And I went into his home and found that there was all kinds of food choices his family were making that were very different than my German food choices with which uh, I, ha- I had been brought up. And somehow in, in the adventurous tasting of food, it, it really brought us together in some unique ways. And, and I think the importance of that story is a lot of us are really different in public and feel like we have to hide in so many ways. But when we get into each other's homes and we decide to really get to know each other on those very intimate play in those intimate spaces and places, food is one of those things that we can learn from one another. Man, I, I love that story. And even as you're sharing that, I just got the opportunity to speak in, uh, at, at, I think it's called Lake Minnetonka or Minnetonka high school is yep. where I was at in, in February. Um, up that way, and so that definitely struck a chord with me. And uh, the funny thing is, like in this book, you know, I think the stereotype that we hear a lot of times is how you know, African Americans will love fried chicken. Well, in this, in the book that that me and Dean have uh, done our research on, in South Korea, they're actually eating fried chicken during the baseball games, which is pretty funny. Uh, but I, but I love how you know food is always bringing us to go closer together, and I think it will continue to do so. You know, my wife's from Brazil, and one of the big things they have is, like, Brazilian steakhouses or, like, churrasco uh, for their meat. So I think it's, it's definitely something that brings us together, and sports and food always makes out for a great day. I love that. So is there something from Brazil that you've been able to taste recently? You think, I cannot believe that I did my life without this the first how many ever number of years? Yeah, I think it's, it's called picanha, which is, like, their cut of steak, right? So I think in, in here we call it, like, top sirloin or or a different type of cut, but over there they call it picanha, and it's probably the best steak I've ever had in my life. So uh, <laughs> I'll definitely give them that over the U.S. My wife always brags about it. Um, but, yeah, that's definitely one thing I'll take home with me. I love that. Well, Chris, I'm about five miles from Minnetonka High School, so next time you are around uh, and to, to speak there, I expect you to come over with that cut of steak. <laughs> I love it, man. I, I probably won't cook it that, that well. I'm still working on my culinary skills, but it's definitely good to eat, so we'll have to find a spot. Well, Australia is a pretty big home for baseball, too. I know there's a lot of cricket and, and um, some different kinds of Australian rules football that happen there. But uh, it sounds like there's an interesting intersection between a gold rush and baseball in Australia. You, you learned about that as part of this book, too. We did. And, and even looking at baseball, being such a young guy, like I didn't know that it was starting in, the, in like in the 1850s. And we talk about the sport that I love being, a you know, bat flips and all this stuff. Baseball has been around for so long in all these different places. And we realize, man, this sport is something that should be celebrated just like we should celebrate the people that are playing it, whether they're from the down under, whether they're from the south side of Chicago, from Canada, from Cuba. we got to love people, and loving this sport is definitely something that I, I want to keep pushing out there. And I would imagine baseball is also a vehicle for missions types of works, Chris. I, I know that I had a chance uh, a few years ago to go to Israel where they were holding baseball camps. And it really just that, again, that commonality of doing baseball together during the day led to all kinds of different faith conversations and life conversations in the evening. So it is more than just entertainment and more than just leisure. These really can be intentional vehicles to help bring us together. Amen, man. One of the... Uh thing that I remember most about playing in the minor leagues, we'd have chapel on Sunday. And uh, we didn't have time to go to church because we had our games, we had our batting practice, but a chaplain would always come in. And a lot of Latin, Latin American players would go, even though they didn't understand English too well, they would go just out of respect. Um, and so that's something I definitely remember from my playing days. And I think obviously our faith will bring us closer together and we put our sport 
and our faith together, man, I think people will come together for sure. Yeah, Chris, I know you got to run. Before I let you run uh, briefly, there is talk about allowing robotic umpires into the major leagues because people are frustrated with the calls on balls and strikes. We're seeing artificial intelligence come that direction. Do you, do you see that happening here anytime soon? I hope not, man. I think that would take take a lot of, I don't know, fun out of the game. I know we got people that complain balls and strikes, but Every now and then you might you might get you might get a call that goes your way. If there's an electronic umpire, something that looks definitely like a ball, and all of a sudden it's a strike, and you're like, how in the world was that a strike? If it started here and ended, it'd just be weird. So I think that's a little bit too much. We try to make the game quicker, right? Time, you know, time clocks, and uh, you know, I guess a certain amount of pitchers being able to, or a certain amount of batters you have to face, like all these different things we're trying to do to speed up the game. Bases getting bigger for more stolen bases, like all these different things we're doing are cool, but I think taking out umpires is just too much, man. Yeah, agreed. I mean, what would we do then with the managers who love to come out for a quick dust-up with the umpire? That's some of the best theater <laughs> that we see in baseball when that happens. You're right. You're right. It's funny. And then, you you know, umpires are human. They make a bad call. They may make up for it later on in the game. They'll, they'll might, they might give you one. And so that all that goes down the drain if it's just uh, electronic umpires. Yeah, well, for those of you that enjoy baseball, even from afar, this is a great book that Chris has written. It's more than just baseball. It really takes us into different cultures around the world, how we can understand one another. The book is Baseball Around the World, How the World Plays the Game. Thanks so much for the time this morning, Chris. God bless you guys. Thank you. We'll come back in just a few minutes with more on Mornings with Carmen. You know, Paul Pro, you never know what to expect on Mornings with Carmen. We have, this we, has been a wild morning. We have you know? had a wild ride. We've kind of nearly tipped off the rails a couple times. We couldn't find <laughs> Adam Carrington at first, and Chris Singleton needed a, a quick change in schedule. So here we are at 20 minutes past the top of the hour, and we have some open space to talk. And we've been taking listener comments right. and questions this morning, which I really appreciate, and uh, hearkening back to the opening conversation of Hour 1 with Ben Johnson. If you missed that conversation, you're going to want to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Ben and I spent about 15 to 18 minutes talking through a story that was highlighted at Fox News in which some parents um, truly and fervently believed that their daughter uh, needed to, to transition to be a boy at the age of five. And it's a really troubling article. We covered a lot of different angles of that. And so go to MyFaithRadio.com and go to Mornings with Carmen page. You can hear what Ben and I had to talk about. He also wrote some articles that are available at the WashingtonStand.com. It's just WashingtonStand.com. WashingtonStand.com. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's a new site that Ben is releasing some of his work, and there's more than than just this article there, but it's really worth attending to. And, and one of the comments that um, we were addressing in that first hour had to do with people's senses of attractions, people's sense of gender and dysphoria, how they understand themselves, and uh, and really trying to to parse out the difference between memory and conception, because there there is about a three to four year time gap between when a person is conceived and when they start having active memories. So when somebody articulates that I've been attracted to the same gender ever since I can remember, therefore God created me this way, it's that therefore that as, as sober-minded people that we can question. And so I want to just revisit that one more time, that we need to take each other seriously we need to see each other first and foremost as image bearers. We need to recognize that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We are all broken. We are all in need of healing. 
And in so saying, then we can also then create the kind of space of, I think, healthy and safe conversations where we take one another seriously. And when somebody says, I've been attracted to the same gender ever since I can remember, I believe them. And oftentimes these are our loved ones, the people closest to us. Uh, There's a lot of social pressure to identify in these ways these days. And so we need to take one another seriously while at the same time recognizing that what's true from a scientific standpoint and a biblical standpoint is that um, we don't have a sexual gene letter in all of the different versions and variants that have uh, emerged in our educational systems and political systems these last few years. And Paul, one other comment on this. It's really helpful to note, scripturally speaking, it's something, again, that I didn't know until maybe about 10, 12 years ago. I was studying with an Old Testament scholar who was getting into the original Hebrew of the biblical text and how we were created. Mm -hmm. And he said this. This was utterly life-changing for me. He said that the Hebrew language is a verb-based language. And, And what that means is that we don't have nouns in the Hebrew language the way we do in English, which means that human beings are actually verbs and not nouns. And because we are verbs, we are constantly changing. We are constantly growing. We are constantly shifting. Even the blood in my corpuscles have shifted in the moment since uh, I started this conversation. I'm older now. There is actually no present tense. Uh, If you try to live in the present, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I dare you. You can't. I mean, try it, Paul. I'll count to three. You live in the present, okay? One, two, three. You missed it. I missed it again. And so the point of that is to say we are all being formed all day long in our attractions and our desires and our interests and our attitudes and our dispositions are all part of our verbiness. And so uh, moving forward, I think one of the more responsible ways the church and leaders of faith and parents and grandparents can understand this specific sexual conversation is to say, hey, look, it might not be an overnight um, change and as we're formed and changed, but but even our very attractions and desires change over the course of a lifetime. And we see that in the dysphoria Mm -hmm. Um, that just scientists and and psychologists recognize that around 90% of cases tend to resolve by the time people are 18 years old. And so to transition a five-year-old hormonally and and through surgery from one gender to the other, when it likely was to be resolved in some way within a few years anyway, because we are verbs and we're always being formed. Mm -hmm. Boy, these are really hard things that are happening right now. And as as I was looking at that article, I was just, in what I've learned about what these, especially on young kids, this surgery we will do, this child is in for so many health problems, potentially, and probably really, as they mature, go through puberty, and then as an adult, I mean, it's like, oh, this is, it's not going to be an easy life for this child. It's not going to be an easy life. And, and this is where the church, and again, people of faith like us as part of the Faith Radio family, one of the things that we need to consistently do is to properly educate ourselves in all of the different dimensions, biblically, socially, psychologically, uh, genetically, biologically, because there really is a pretty ferocious narrative that is underpinning many people's lives today. Mm-hmm. They, they really do believe in, in these falsities. And, and I think about what Jesus's table was probably like. Jesus, I would imagine, was pretty smart. I, lo- I love how Dallas Willard talks about Jesus. He says, he was the smartest man who ever lived, which <laughs> kind of took me aback at first. Well, but then you realize, yeah, he is the God of the universe. He, he probably knows what he's talking about. So Jesus being very smart and, and, um, and obviously being filled with truth and all of these things, he invited all manner of people to his table. I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody belonged at Jesus's table. They were all invited in so much so that the religious leaders of the day really believed that Jesus was one of them, that they called him a sinner and a drunkard and and all of these labels of Jesus. He invited them to the table. We need to be welcoming and open and affirming in that way. 
not in the way our culture is doing it, right. but in that way where we say, hey, the table is open. But in opening that table, that is the place where we really pursue those things that are true together. In mm-hmm. the safety of grace and forbearance, we don't compromise the truth, but it's always being articulated through the lens of grace and compassion. We can be very angry at the Fox Newses of this world, as we should be, but uh, for the people involved, let's have an open table of conversation and grace and compassion where we can walk towards truth together. I think that is the posture that we see in Jesus. Exactly, exactly. He welcomes him in, but he, trans- he, he works in transformation too. Yeah, transformation is the point because we only find our sense of peace, our sense of shalom that so many people are seeking today. We don't find it in the embrace of a sexual letter. We find it in, in the embrace of the good shepherd who will lead us towards wholeness according to the ways of his kingdom and through the lens of grace as we walk towards truth. So much can be said about that. Continue to get into that conversation. Educate yourselves. Be people of truth in the midst of it, but not truth with anger towards the people involved. Truth with grace so that we can live out a witness of love, actual kingdom love in this world. Up next on Mornings with Carmen, we're going to be joined in an interesting conversation about somebody who was mentoring their biological child and they didn't know it. Paul, I don't know who wrote uh, that love language book. I can't remember their name. There's five love languages, right? But but whoever it was, they, they missed the boat on this one. I know it's acts of service and compassion and quality time and, and whatever these languages are. First of all, I can find my love language in any of those five, but I think we're missing a few here. And, and one of them has to do with sports. Sports has to be a love language, I, I, right? It's got to be. That because and sarcasm. Yeah. That and sarcasm. Indeed, we were just talking off air with our next guest, Sherman Smith, and we all agreed, all three of us, that sarcasm is definitely a missing love language when done done well. But sports for me has been one of those. I, I had a chance to cover the Minnesota Twins and Minnesota Timberwolves for uh, the better part of 10 to 12 years, and I appreciate that we're having the first conversation, the first half of this hour. You'll want to go back to MyFaithRadio.com if you missed it with Chris Singleton. He's a former baseball player that wrote a book, Baseball Around the World, How the World Plays the Game. And up next, we're going to be joined by former Seattle Seahawks running back Sherman Smith. And boy, does he have a tale to tell. And as he was mentoring some young players, one of them happened to be his son. I suppose we need to buckle up the football fans this morning, but it's going to be more than a conversation about football for sure. It's quite a tale uh, to be told of Sherman Smith, a former Seattle Seahawks player who was mentoring some young people only to find out that one of them was his biological son. Good morning, Sherman. Good morning. It's great to be with you. You're drafted in 1976 by the Seahawks. It sounds like you had uh, 28 rushing touchdowns and 10 receiving touchdowns. By my count, Sherman, that's 38 more touchdowns than Paul Perot and I have combined. <laughs> yeah, man, that, that's a few more. And I was blessed to have a career, you know, starting out in Seattle uh, when the Seahawks were just a new franchise in 76 and got a chance to grow with that with that team and that organization and then had the pleasure of being able to go back and finish out my coaching career with the Seahawks. Mm. Sherman, we had a conversation with former baseball player Chris Singleton at the top of this hour, and he was talking about how sports, and in his case, baseball, had, a, had a, an ability to bring people together across social and cultural lines. Now, that's more recently. That's 2015 to 20 that he's been involved in baseball. What was life like in the locker room for you across social and cultural lines in the 1970s and 80s? Well, I really believe, you know, in, in sports, man, we could be a, a good model for how the world should operate. 
we realized that we were strong because of our diversity. You know, we had guys, you know, like I said, we didn't like the same kind of music, uh, like the same kind of clothes, eat the same kind of foods. But when we came for purposes of, we had a common denominator, we wanted to win. You know, we wanted to come together as a team. All of those differences were put to the side and we, we stuck to the task at hand. So we recognized we were stronger because of our diversity. And that's why we were able to join hands. Even when I was in college in, in 1972, back in Miami of Ohio, you know, where that school was 98% uh, white at that time. And then a, a large group of uh, black guys started going there, man. And we just came together, man, and won football games and loved each other and still friends today. Yeah, there is something about that common purpose that really has a capacity to draw us together in ways in which other vehicles or mediums maybe maybe struggle to do so. Sherman, after you retired, how soon was it that you got into the coaching ranks in the NFL? Well, after I got... Uh, my last year was in 1984 with the San Diego Chargers. Uh, it ended, I had a knee injury in training camp. And so in 85, I started teaching and coaching. And really, uh, Paul and Peter, when I went to college, playing pro football was not a dream, it was nothing. You know, I just played football and had a good enough career. They said, hey, you might get drafted. But I just wanted to be a high school teacher and a coach. That was it. So when I, when I retired from football in 84, I knew what I wanted to do. And I put in an application at uh, Lake Washington School District out there in the Seattle area and start coaching, uh, teaching middle school and coaching, coaching on the high school level. And it started from there. So in, since 1985 is when I started coaching. And was it around that time, too, that you started developing a heart for mentoring? I mean, I know it's one thing to be a coach or a teacher and teach content or abilities, uh, but it's another thing to be a mentor. Was that all in one box for you at that time or, or did the desire to mentor grow within you over time? Well, really, for me, when, you know, I had back up and tell the story how, you know, I decided I wanted to be a coach. It was a result of my high school coach, Clifton Knox. He came to our high school when our high school was a losing program, and he turned that program, turned it around from the inside out, not with X's and O's, but how he talked to us as, as men and women, how he told us what we could do and the great people we could be. And I was sitting in the back of his health class one day, and I said, that's it. I want to be a coach, and I want to make a difference in the lives of students and players, the way Coach Knox has made a difference in my life and in my teammates and classmates' life. So I really knew that's the reason why I wanted to coach. I knew the why, you know, how, why I wanted to coach. And then uh, I think when I became a Christian, it became even more clear how I was going to do it. Well, and it sounds like your father also had an impact on your desire to, to bring some things to the next generation. It's amazing how influential people like teachers and fathers can be in our lives. Well, you know, they say parents and teachers have the greatest influence on people. And my dad definitely had that influence on myself and my two brothers, you know, and I, I was just so, you know, my dad was my hero growing up. So, yes, I, I didn't have to look out the side, out the four uh, walls of my house to see what a man was. My dad was that guy. And growing up in, in Ohio, the way our country was back in the late 60s and 70s, the thing I loved about my dad was he was never bitter about any of the things that were going on that where he felt, you know, he wasn't getting a fair opportunity. He, he never made us bitter. He never said we won't use racism and that stuff as an excuse. And man, so he just built something in us that, that told us that we, we could rise above anything and, you know, that we are capable of doing everything. And so my dad was just, he was the guy for me. And so I imitate a lot of stuff that I did with my kids based on what my father did with me and my two brothers. Mm, talking to Sherman Smith this morning. He's a former running back in the NFL for the Seattle Seahawks. We're talking about mentoring and, and about the importance of giving back to the next generation. 
And Sherman, for all of us, that's true. But boy, do you have a unique spin on what happened as you started mentoring some young people. Tell us uh, about the story of how you discovered that one of the people you're mentoring was your biological son. Yeah, you know, like I said, I was just starting. I was coaching high school football at Redmond High School for five years. And a teammate of mine got the head job back at Miami of Ohio. And so he called me when I was out in the Seattle area and said, man, let's go back to our alma mater. Let's make some changes, see if we can change it and get it back to the way it was when we were there. So I went back there and, and started, you know, coaching and recruiting. And so I was given my home uh, area to recruit. And I recruited Campbell Memorial High School and recruited this young man by the name of Dela McCullough. And so, you know, recruited him. I left after he, he came. Then I left after one year and went to the University of Illinois. And we just maintained contact, great guy, and all this other stuff. And, and so, you know, so that philosophy that I had, that I got from my, my father, my coaches, it was a, a thing. I think that thinker was, you may not be looking for a father, but I'm going to treat you like you're my son or my daughter. And that's what I carried into my coaching. No matter who it was, I would always tell that to my players. You may not be looking for a father, but, but I'm going to treat you like you're my son. You know, and that was that was it. And so I looked at every guy that I coached like he was my son. And and so it just happened that, you know, uh, as I was coaching this guy, um, I get a call from him uh, in November of 2017. And, you know, and we already had a relationship. We've we talked a lot. So all of this. So our connecting wasn't anything strange. And he called me, said, I need to talk to you. And I thought he wanted to talk about he's probably getting a job, you know, getting some counsel on it. And he talked about how he had been adopted and. You know, I said, yeah, I know. And he said, you know, I started looking for my parents. I said, that's great. And he said, I found my biological mom. And man, that's really beautiful. He said, and, uh, and I asked her who my father was. And she said it was you. And man, I'm going to tell you, I was glad I was sitting down. Uh, and, because if I had been driving a car somewhere, it would have been an accident. You know, it was like, whoa. You know, and so it just, man, my life, it just, you know, so I'm sitting there, I'm quiet. You know, and when I did talk, I was mumbling. I was just trying to figure out what to say. And I finally told him, uh, I need to call you back. I said, I need to, I need to process this right here. So I, in a couple of hours, I called him back and we just continued to talk about it and, you know, what was going on. And I apologized to him for not being there. Like my father was there for me. And like, I was there for my two kids, Siobhan and Sherman. And uh, he said, Hey, you were there. He said, you treated me like I was your son. Mm. And um, you know, and so I, I was glad I didn't have to apologize to him for that. So, you know, God really man, brought that together in ways that, you know, none of us would have thought it was possible. The fact that I went back there and I recruited him to college, you know, uh, and the thing that happened, guys, while we were at school at Miami of Ohio, his teammates would joke with him and say, man, you and Coach Smith, man, that's got to be your dad. You know, he, that, that got to be your dad, you know, because he had a picture of us together when he uh, signed his commitment letter to come to Miami. And guys just looked at that picture and said, man, and then they would be around us. And even as late as uh, after we won the Super Bowl in Seattle, Dylan came out and did a, ment a mentor uh, mentoring program that summer. And the, uh, one of our line coaches, he, his hall, his office was right across the hallway from mine. And he just came over and he said, man, look here, this is too crazy. You guys have to be father and son. People were telling us that. And I was looking at man, you're crazy, you know, because there was no reason for me to believe that he was my son because, you know, his biological mom never told me she was pregnant. You know, and so I had no reason to think he was my son. Yeah, we looked, you know, we looked alike a little bit, you know, and we talked alike and guys said, you guys even walk alike and all that stuff. So, but I just, I brushed it off. And then uh, when he called and told me that, you know, I said, well, you know, so we, 
we did a DNA test and, you know, and, and I just told him, I want to do that. I said, I know your biological mom is certain. I said, I just want to be certain. And he said, yeah, I'm fine with that. So we got the DNA results back. But I will say this, you know, when I first heard the news, I wasn't happy. You know, I was hurt. And like I said, I was hurt by the fact that I wasn't there for him. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a thing about being ashamed or anything. It was I was I was hurting because of what he didn't get that I got. And I and I, and I my reckless and irresponsible behavior resulted in this young man being brought up without his biological father in his life. And that really, that hurt me. God allowed me for, honestly, it had to be about three or four days. God allowed me to feel the gravity of that, you know, before he allowed me to experience the joy hmm. that came from discovering that this was my son. And I thank God for allowing me to, to feel that pain because, you know, uh, it, it makes my message even more stronger as I talk to young men today, you know, about you can't be reckless and irresponsible. You know, you got to, you got to do it God's way. So once God allowed, freed me up to enjoy the joy of what we had, you know, I haven't looked back and my wife and my kids were really instrumental in allowing me to free me up because when I told my wife that night, after the night dealing, dealing called me in the morning and I told my wife that night and she was the one that she didn't flinch. She said, hey, our family just got bigger. She embraced it. She ran with it from day one to this very day. She treats that young man and our grandsons like they are her, they are hers. And so uh, so my family really made the transition easy for me. They just told me I had to be easier on myself than I had been. I appreciate that, that you you brought us in to some of what happened after the initial event, uh, Sherman, because I think we so often spend time talking about the event itself, but then we need to live within those events in the hours and days and weeks and months that come. And so we're going to step away for just a minute. When we come back, I want to ask you a few more questions about the ensuing four or five years since that time, as well as the importance of mentoring young people. Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen. Peter Kapsner filling in for today. We've been talking with Sherman Smith, former running back for the Seattle Seahawks, longtime NFL coach, and he told quite the story before the break about uh, discovering that he had been mentoring for a while, uh, a person who all along had been his biological son. And Sherman, you, you tell a little bit about the impact that happened in the hours and, and days and weeks and months after discovering this information that Dylan was your son. And, uh, and you just mentioned in passing that your wife, Sharon, was really quite the rock in those moments for you. So if you wouldn't mind, just talk about a little bit how this went down in your family a bit more and the importance of having somebody alongside you in the journey to support you when some of these big unexpected events happen. Oh, yes. Well, you know, when I got the call from Dylan that morning, you know, man, the, the weight of it was really heavy on my mind. And at first I wasn't going to tell my wife until we knew for sure, but it just weighed on me that I she was cooking that night and I just said, Hey, I need to talk to you. And she came in and she sat down and, and I told her the story and, you know, and she could see that, you know, I was hurting. She, she thought I had something serious to tell her. She thought I might have a health issue or something like that. And so when I told her the story, uh, man, she just said, Hey, she said, our family just got bigger and I, I want to go meet my grandsons, you know, and that, and that was it. And the, at the time when, I found out there were only three people that mattered to me, what they thought, and that was my wife and my daughter, Siobhan, and, and my son, Sherman. Those were the only three people that I cared about. So when I told my daughter, my daughter lives in the Nashville area. When I, I went to her townhouse where she lived, and I told her, and 
And she said, hey, I always wanted a big brother. And so she, she said, how's mom? I said, she's great. So man, they were great because mom was great. Then my son came, he, he's married, living in North Carolina, his family, they came for Thanksgiving. And I told him, cause I wanted to tell him in person, I wasn't gonna make a phone call. So when he came, I told him and his response was exactly the same. And same question, how's mom? You know, mom is great. He was great. So, you know, once we got it confirmed, uh, I think Sharon was all in even before we had the confirmation of the DNA. But I believe after we got the confirmation, my son and my daughter, they rejoiced, you know, and met their brother and, and you know, the half brother. And man, it's, it's been good. Our family was very receptive. Uh, we had a family reunion. So that was in November of 17 that we found out, but we had a family reunion that next summer and uh, Dylan was there. And man, our family just embraced them. And so, you know, everybody loves them and our, you know, our four grandsons. And uh, it, it's just been, a, it's been a wonderful journey with them. Man, incredible. You, you talked about how uh, you described that your family just got bigger. Has there been uh, interactions as well with Dylan's uh, adoptive parents? Yeah, his mom, you know, his adoptive mom, Adele, you know, when I recruited him in college, we became, we got connected then. And so Adele's been great. You know, Adele's been absolutely awesome in this whole process. She she wanted Dylan to find out. She had always told him, if you want to find out, I'll help you. I'll tell you what I know. And she was beautiful, you know. And so, you know, I think, it, you know, at the onset, you know, just getting adjusted to the fact that, you know, he had found his biological mom and dad and, you know, and, and she just embraced it and, you know, embraced us, embraced everybody. And and so it, it's, it's it's been one of them stories that only God could bring together in grace and uh, love, uh, you know, had to cover a lot of things. And so we've just been having a, you know, a good time with this, with this story and, and, and enjoying each other and, and our relationships. Mm. Talking to Sherman Smith, uh, once again, the former running back at the Seattle Seahawks, been a long time involved in the NFL. And we're talking about mentoring through the lens of discovering that he was actually mentoring one of his biological sons. And Sherman, just talk in general about mentoring what you've seen over the years. I know that we are probably three or so generations into an epidemic of fatherlessness in particular in our country with the brokenness of families. And, and mm-hmm. I would imagine that you see week in and week out just the importance of young people and young men in particular needing mentors in their lives. Absolutely. That's why I believe, you know, the mindset I had, which I believe is the mindset that my father had and even the other guys in my life. I had my biological father, but I had other fathers also. A lot of my, my high school coaches, my little league coaches, all of those guys treated me like I was their son, even though they knew I had a father. And so that was just the way it was. And so we just embraced it. When they say it takes a village to raise a child, it was truly that that fact that other men reinforced what my dad and my mom were trying to were trying to teach us. And so I, in fact, think that's that's what we got to do, man. We got to look at every child like they're our child, respond to them like like they're ours and understand the importance of what we have. You know, we have to lead by example. I think the day of don't do as I do, do as I say to do is over with. Our kids today need an example, someone that lives with integrity, someone that will will be an example of, you know, what a man should be, you know, and we need to share our hurts. We need to share our failures with our kids so so that they know that, man, you know, I'm not perfect. One thing I didn't have to do, I didn't have to apologize to my kids after the discovery came about dealing saying, ah, you know, I lied to you. I know I told you I was just like this choir boy growing up and, you know, man, I, I saved myself from marriage and all that other stuff. 
I've shared my scars with my kids and, and let them know my failures. And really those, those scars become beauty marks when someone learns from your mistakes. And so that's why I think men need to be able to share their hurts and their pains and, and kids need to learn from history. They need to learn from other people's mistakes and just, you know, valuing kids and, and, and just telling them what they're worth, not looking at them as acorns, but looking at them as oak trees, you know, not what they are, but what they can be and just speak life, to, speak life to kids. And so I just think that's really important of what we have to do as men, you know, outside of our home, let alone in our home. We, we definitely need to do it in our home, but man, it extends further than that. With every young man, every young lady that you meet, you should, man, you should instill the values that you would with your own children and, you know, and love them in a way that they understood that they're valued and they're loved. Mm. Chairman, I just got goosebumps a couple times there when you're describing the importance of mentoring. I think if you've got room in your house for me to come over and be mentored by you, I think I'd take you up on it. <laughs> we got room for you. Come on over. I love it. Well, we got to leave it right there. Unfortunately, I'd love another half an hour with you, hour with you down the road at some point to just talk about exactly what you're doing, which is mentoring the next generation. But beyond that, in, in helping plant these oak trees, that goes for generations to come as well. Thanks for all the work you're doing, Chairman, and the time this morning. Okay, Paul and Peter, thank you guys, man, for the work you do, too. We'll take a short break and wrap up our show here for the 16th of June. I don't know about all of you, but I still have some bumps on my arm from what Sherman was talking oh, yeah. about there. And, Paul, that was that was quite the story. The text line was lighting up. Precious family, beautiful example. We're talking about a man who is investing in the next generations, not from a place even of what we sometimes might consider strength, but a place of brokenness, which, oddly enough, in God's kingdom, it is that place of brokenness in which we find true strength. And I love what he's talking about, you know, how he was so honest with his kids. So it's like... The scars got redeemed. His yeah. mistakes got redeemed. It's not the phrase he used, but I just saw that, and it's like, oh, so beautiful, what yeah. God can do. It was absolutely beautiful. Really, I love this last hour of the show. Again, you can head to MyFaithRadio.com. Catch the podcast. We talked with Chris Singleton of Major League Baseball. We also talked with Sherman Smith just now from the Seattle Seahawks. As a person whose love language also includes sarcasm and sports, it was fun to talk about those topics uh, through the lens of faith and athletics and so much there. And for those of you that texted in because I could not remember failing in my Christendom, failing in my credibility as a professor, I could not remember <laughs> the author of the five love languages. Thanks for all the texts. It is officially Gary, Gary Chapman, Chapman, of course. I'm just going to suggest that there might be a few more love languages than what young Gary brought to the table. What a delight to start the day with all of you as part of the Faith Radio family. Continue to fix your eyes on Jesus today and think about what maybe is one thing you can do to plant a bit of an acorn that might become an oak tree of righteousness. We'll see you tomorrow morning, everybody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.